Well, hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I'm in what might be called a den, but I've now discovered is the international headquarters <laughs> of the Los Angeles Review of Books with its founder and Eminos, not particularly grise, Tom Lutz. Tom, um, how are you? I'm, I'm pretty grise. Uh, <laughs> You're pretty grise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this is... Where you were just telling me you have your staff meetings. And yeah, so this on is our this is our review. this is the staff office in my office is right right next, next door. door. And you've got your display of guitars, weights for lifting. Everything's here. Yeah, it's um, you know this was this was my office uh, right. until I started this, and the, now it's it's gradually become the LARB offices. So there's so, still there's still some detritus, I guess, from my, its former life. I love it. So this Los Angeles Review of Books or LARB, we've got. Uh, listeners to the show in uh, 50 different countries each week, mm -hmm. uh, some of whom will are often, often many of whom are not working in English as a first language, many Good. of whom don't necessarily know the US literary scene. And I'm sure that's true of the readership of Los Angeles Review of Books too. Uh, we have, we have uh, readers, uh, that is people who, you know, it's always a little bit hard to tell because there are these bots that that run around uh, for Google and whatnot and, 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 and play with your numbers. But uh, as far as we can tell, we have actual readers in as many as 140 countries. Wow. Um, you know, people that are reading more than more than a page and spending more than a, a few minutes um, uh, over the over the year that we've been publishing. That's so, fantastic. And, and regular readers in, uh, in um, yeah, 70, 80, 90 countries. Wow, wow. So in terms of the, the project, if you could explain that a little, that would be great. What you were setting out to do when you first dreamt this up? When I when I first started, it was actually uh, I guess there's a, there's there are a couple of ways to do the origin story. One one is that um, I I was um, offered a job to um, edit a, a literary journal um, that uh, that uh, you know has a good literary journal, and I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. I I had just written something for them, and they and they're the, the editor at the time who was retiring um, liked my work and uh, wanted to know if I was if I was interested. So I, I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to take that on as a full time job, but maybe my department. I'm in the Department of Creative Writing at Riverside, UC Riverside, and so I thought maybe my department would this would be a good project that we could do collectively. Um, so I asked some various people in the department if they thought this was a good idea. And uh, Chris Abani said to me, um, I don't know why you would buy a used journal when buying a new journal is the same price. <laughs> <laughs> that is, why wouldn't you just do what you want to do rather than kind of take on something that's got a history and therefore you're kind of, however much you change it, you're bound a little bit to that history. And I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting, Let me let me just see what it, what it is that I would like to do if I was going to do anything. And it was at the time when uh, book reviews around the country were dying, left and right. Um, you know, Seattle paper, the, the uh, Washington paper, the Boston paper, uh, the Los Angeles Times folded its review into the art section. Um, and uh, I grew up, my entire relation to literary culture came from the Sunday Supplement mm. book review. That's, mm -hmm. that's where I learned what what books were and what, what it meant to talk about books. And, uh, I wanted people to continue to have that kind of relation to it. Obviously there were a lot, there was a lot going on online in, in relation to books, but at that point in particular, this is now three years ago. Um, it still was very largely either, um, uh, crowdsourcing of various kinds, whether it was Amazon, um, reviews, reviews or, yeah, yeah. or, um, or it was blogs. It was individual blogs. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. 
some of which were fantastic and great and, and, and important to, to the literary culture, but um, nothing that had that kind of uh, group effort. And there's, you know, two heads sometimes are better than one, and yeah. 15 heads are sometimes better than two. And, um, and, uh, and so uh, to have a kind of uh, curated um, uh, piece of work that had a lot of different uh, forms of expertise going into it, um, and that uh, would kind of not just keep alive the the great American tradition of the book review because it is a middle class um, phenomenon the book review, um, uh, but the um, but to kind of see what we could do to reinvent it. Sure, sure. Seemed like the thing to do. Yeah, and the title where does that come from? Los Angeles well, Review of Books. Well, it was a fairly self consciously steampunk. Idea, <laughs> because uh, you know it's 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 online. It really exists nowhere. Um, uh, we have we have contributors from around the world. We have you know letters from Tahrir Square and from from uh, Trinidad and from London and uh, you know Saint Petersburg. So we 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 we're, we're we have uh, global contributors. We have global readers, uh, and. It, it harkens back to a day when um, publication was uh, local. But literary culture, of course, is itself a, a cosmopolitan affair. It's a, it's, a, right. it's a cosmopolitan activity. But it's run and managed from here, isn't it? It's run, it's run and managed from here, yes, at this, at this point. Um, you know, it's, it's not clear to me what the kind of life cycle of this thing will look like. Uh-huh. Um, the, there are there are people involved who um, may get take a, an academic job, for instance, somewhere else, and stay very much involved. Um, uh, I, I can we have we have taken on some contributing editors from around around the world, um, uh, and we uh, will continue to, to do that. So I can I can I can imagine it. Um, you know, there are lots of there are lots of uh, um, online journals where the editorial staff is scattered around the sure, around, sure. The, around the globe. You know, I'm- one of the reasons for asking the question is also that when you mentioned how you grew up learning about what literary culture was or could be, my version of that is reading the Quality Sundays, uh, the Sunday New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, the Observer and the Sunday Times in Britain, and reading their reviews, and reading the Times Literary Supplement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in all those cases, these were fairly conventional book reviews in that they focused on the book. Mm-hmm. Especially the Times Literary Supplement, which still does that pretty much. You know, what actually goes on from A to Z. Right. When I ventured into the New York Review of Books, and we're talking about life as a teenager, so during the Vietnam War, I got across that they often didn't really review the book. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and this is yes, right. Yeah. The sort of inflexibility of adolescence, right? Mm-hmm. It says it's a review of books. Whereas the, the, the book <laughs> seems to have disappeared. It was mentioned at the beginning... I've read a thousand words. I still don't know who wrote it or what it is. Yeah, and, you know, there, and and that goes back to the name, the Los, the Los Angeles Review of Books. We are we are definitely uh, in in all sorts of ways modeled on the New York Review of Books right. rather than on the New York Times Book Review, even right. though that was right. the one I read first as well. Um, uh, in that we do we are interested in essays more than we are reviews. We're interested in in uh, review essays. We're in, we're interested in um, in essays that that actually don't have that much to do with books at all even right they're jumping Um, off points they're jumping off points Sven Sven Berger for instance just wrote a piece for us about uh, artistic envy and it was based on watching uh, Amadeus one more time um, 
has I don't think he mentions a book in it ever, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's quite all right. Um, we you know so it's a review of books and culture. Yeah, it's um, a jumping off point. Yeah, and I mean, um, how would you tell me what your thoughts are without wanting to mm-hmm. either valorize or dismiss competitors? Let's say. What do you think of the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books, which I think of as being parallel activities? We aspire to their quality. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, they're, 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 they're two fantastic um, enterprises. I'm, 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 uh, I, 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 I never, I mean, it's gotten uh, much worse since I started trying to do this myself. Um, but I, I read the New York Review of Books and I think, holy mackerel, that's great. Yeah, that is really good. They are really, you know, the the kind of obviously the writers they get are are top notch, and the editing is fabulous, and yeah. it's just a it's just a remarkable piece of work. And the London Review of Books as well. So, um, you know, there are things that we we run that that they don't, and that they wouldn't um, that were that we find interesting. You know, um, uh, we we're, we think of ourselves as as cast as 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 a much bigger umbrella. Well, their print origins are still very present, aren't they? Sure. I think. Sure. Yeah, and their and their online presence is simply a kind of mirror of the of the print presence. Yeah, yeah. And so we, you know, one of the things that I've that I've really liked being able to do is we, for instance, we we ran a piece on um, the origin of Charlie Chaplin's Tramp. Um, that is, the um, Mabel Normand was the person who. This, the argument goes, John Borston wrote this for us. He's a filmmaker himself. And his argument is that Mabel Norman is the one that made The Little Tramp possible. She was directing the, the film in which it first happened. And her bosses, Max Sennett and Pathé Lerman, um, were both um, action, action, action. No, no, the camera does not linger. Not, if, it, if something new hasn't happened within three seconds, <laughs> you're doing something wrong. And so she, but she made the camera stay on Charlie Chaplin as he twirled his cane, looked in around the, a hotel lobby, did nothing, went for 25 seconds. He finally sits down in a chair and the chair breaks him. It's uh, 25 seconds setting up a breaking chair joke. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, everybody in their autobiographies remembers this differently, mm-hmm. this, this scene and this origin uh, for, for the tramp. Um, Chaplin, L- Lehrman, um, Senate uh, all wrote about it. But Mabel Norman did not. She didn't live long enough to write her autobiography, and so we don't. We we never quite got her story. And, and Borson kind of uh, is is telling it uh, for her now, many years later. And and he did that by by putting in a clip every three paragraphs. So you see the very first time that Charlie Chaplin's on film. You see what, the way he was doing it. You see the very first time he does a, a, a comic routine on film, and it's straight out of a, a vaudeville sensibility. And then you see the very first time that the tramp appears, and you see that something has happened. Something somebody's allowing him, or helping him, or pushing him to do something different. And from then on, he's the he's the tramp. And it's a and and uh, all of the the there are also clips about the kinds of villains that he was modeling himself on before he became the tramp. Uh, clips of other people trying to do the kind of thing he was doing. Uh, so it's a, it's a it's a kind of form of criticism that was not po- not possible, obviously, in print. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, Absolutely. So, and the the the, the review also has video materials in general and audio materials. Yeah, right. We're doing we're doing podcasts. We're doing one with a, with a guy named Toby Miller uh, <laughs> on his book called Greening the Media. Uh, we've we just recorded that very recently, <laughs> about three minutes ago. In, in the a other galaxy <laughs> far far away. <laughs> um, but. Uh, 
yeah, we're 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 we're, tr- we're doing uh, at this point. It's just about weekly that we but we put up uh, a new a new audio podcast. And we put up a new piece of film. We have these LARB one minute films. They're really about two minutes, but we have, and we have LARB five minute films, um, but all very short bits. Uh, in one case. Um, I, as I, as I've been recording authors, um, I've often asked them some of the same questions. Um, for a while we were very interested in, uh, these kind of debates about the memoir and the, and truthiness in, mm-hmm. in nonfiction writing. Truthiness. Yeah. It's Ruthiness's sister, right? <laughs> truthiness. Yes. Uh, and Stephen Colbert's brother. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, we, um, we uh, put together, you know, just a, a series of clips. They're all from, you know, different interviews done on diff- different days. Um, but we we have a page where we have clips of s- six or seven people talking about this issue, and we'll we'll just keep adding to that um, as we go along. Um, so it's a kind of growing uh, encyclopedia of talk about that particular issue nice. on film. We also have re- started recording young adult, um, young young adult. They're not young adults. They're they're young people um, uh, who are reading young adult fiction in some cases and also reading uh, adult fiction but they're doing video reviews basically Uh, and what we hope is that that will grow over time and we'll get um we you know once once we get the the word out about that and we're we're equipped for it we're really not quite set up to to get this started yet but as soon as we are uh what we want is is for for uh kids of uh, of all ages to send us their reviews and uh, and you know pitch us in the same way that anybody would pitch us we're not going to put everything up we're going to put the stuff up that we think is really good, and um, we hope that at that that becomes a, a kind of vibrant place for uh, literary dialogue. There's a lot of great um, young readers uh, talking about their stuff on YouTube. Um, there's a lot of a lot of energy out there, and some of them set themselves up in front of a bookcase the way a, a normal talking head on a book show would, and some uh, do do other things. But there, there's there's uh, we're we're hoping to to build on that uh, on that and kind of bring. Uh, Keep bringing younger, young and and younger people into uh, book talk. That's wonderful. The Guardian Books podcast, which I like, uh, although I'm one of these people who lets five or six sit on my playing device and then listens to all of them in a go, one go. They sometimes have young reviewers in who are mm. always wonderful, incredibly interesting. Okay, yeah, we we have not done any young podcasts yet. Yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of a fun thing, but I I love what you're talking about. If I can. As they say in baseball, take you back, back, back. Mm-hmm. So just after that conversation with Chris Sabani, wonderful novelist mm-hmm. who is one of Tom's colleagues in his department of creative writing, as he said, wonderful, wonderful novelist. Uh, so you decided you weren't going to take on an existing entity. You were going to create your own one. Mm-hmm. What did you do next? Because at this time, at this point, it's you were using the term we, but at that point, it was I, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess it was pretty much me. I don't really remember the time before there were there were other people working on it. But I, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I I I um I, I knew Love I before Los Angeles. Of your yeah, books, the new chronology, the new world history. Um, I uh, I start what I what I decided was uh, that. Well, you know, there's a very interesting thing, and and I, and I learned this from one of the people that work for me, Evan Evan Kindley. He's doing research into uh, mid mid 20th century. Um, critic, writer critics, poet critics, in fact. Um, the Ford Foundation in the, in the middle of the century, the middle of the 20th century, wanted to support some literary journals. And so it asked um, some of the 
kind of uh, usual suspects. Clif- Lionel Trilling, Clifton people. Fadiman, and you know, um, you know, the the Book of the Month Club guys, and this guy, to tell them what which journals they should um, review. And their response was to not just give them a list, but to send out a letter asking the great writers of the day which ones they thought should do. And so there's a box of of uh, there's a there's an archive of these letters um, that very very interesting. And uh, and um, Evelyn Waugh. Uh, I think it was, wrote a letter in which he said, all of these journals are the same. They all are, um, they start with a person's kind of inspiration. That person gets their friends involved. The friends donate their first piece to help them get the thing off the ground. And the fancier their friends are, the, the, the <laughs> The more famous their friends are, the more of a splash the thing makes. Uh, and then uh, everybody talks about how great it is, and that keeps it alive for a year, maybe two years. And eventually those people that donated their first base go back to selling their work to the Saturday Evening Post or whatever else was, was going. And, and, um, and the, the journal peters out and dies. They have a natural life cycle, and it starts with enthusiasm and, and generosity and ends with... Um, kind of amateurism and and um, death and so uh, I, I, I I had some sense that one of the things I had to do was start with a bit of a splash and I just thought well this is first first of all I just thought it was a really good idea to, to start to have a have a, a serious book review on online I just thought it was a, a worth doing so I, and I thought everybody would agree with me <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, you know, just, I, I don't know, I, I, it was partly just um, that silly thought. Turns out not everybody does agree with me. But, um, Astonishing, right? Yes, really, isn't it? <laughs> Always surprising every time I learn that. Um, but the, uh, I, I started asking people if I could use their name um, on my list of contributing editors. And I wrote to people, some, some of whom I knew, you know, from being in the literary business for a long time, some of them I, I'd never met. I just got their emails and I said, uh, what, what do you think? Can I put your name on? The... And and people said not only said yes, they would like to, but they said I and I'm and I will contribute, and I'll I'll, I'll give you a piece, and I'll right. And so so it it started just with a kind of uh, email flurry, um, and then I got a list together, and the list helped me get a little bit of money um, uh, to get to get started. Um, uh, Jamie Wolf, in particular, who's one of the most important patrons of literary arts uh, in America uh, over these last couple few decades uh, um, saw what I was doing I talked to her about what I was doing and she jumped on board immediately and she's on our, our board of directors um, Albert Latuka um, who was once president of Macmillan um, but has been in the media business uh, in Los Angeles for a number of years and a number of other businesses he um, also um, j- jumped in very early and helped us uh, and then a piece uh, in the LA Weekly, a piece in the Publishers Publishers Weekly about the fact that this was getting started, um, and that brought in some other volunteers, um, and uh, we were underway. So you became a we. Yes. And some of those volunteers, are they still volunteering? What are they? Well, who is the we now? What does it involve? Oh, the the we now is is uh, is very large. Really, it's it's maybe up to 50 people wow. um, if we uh, because we have uh, for instance we have a legal editor um, he finds a few he's 
write some reviews himself, and he's finding out some other people uh, to write other reviews for. We have a a, a science editor. We actually, and we have now actually two science editors. Um, they're they're in San Francisco. Um, uh, we have um, a, a film editor and an arts editor and a and a, a comics editor and a young adult. Uh, and a children's editor and a right so we have there there are people kind of uh, who have taken on um and rob latham who you know from riverside is uh, is our science fiction science editor fiction, yeah. and he's actually built a little staff himself um of editors uh that are help that, that are helping him uh, run the science fiction pages almost as a separate entity underneath the the, the umbrella of Los Angeles Review Books, and that um, Clarissa Romano is running the um, the young readers section with Cecil Castellucci, who is our young adult author, who is also a young adult editor, and Liz Hanks, uh, E.A. Hanks, who is a children's author and the children's editor, and the three of them are um, kind of running that section, um, building that section up. Uh, Gabriel Calvacoresi is our poetry editor and with Claudia Rankine, and the two of them are bringing in a lot of different um, critics and a lot of different poets. Um, Gabrielle's doing a whole thing on the Olympics, actually, poets writing about the Olympics. Um, uh, that's a really interesting thing. She's also doing a series on um, small presses, small independent presses around the, around the country, starting with some in L.A. Um, and so they're, 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 what I'm hoping is that that'll continue to happen. We're up to, we're up to maybe 50 people altogether, but... I can I can see it just getting larger. That is, uh, I would like to have a vibrant sports section, and that's going to be people that have nothing to do with us yet. There's nobody. There's nobody that we've actually um, Oliver Wang, who does some of our audio um, work, um, is our our audio editor is uh, a sports guy. He's written about Linsanity for us and did a did a podcast with David Leonard about the NBA. But but it's been a very small part of what we're doing, and I'd like to see. Sports writing—that's not the kind of New York Times book review once a year does gets all um, very kind of uh, poetic about baseball. Yeah, it gets very excited about baseball for one one day a year. More and then, kind of Dave Zirin. Yes, stuff. exactly. Yeah, um, and uh, and yeah. and people yeah. sports sports people who write sports books for people who write read sports books um, and have a, have some right. vibrant right. pages so around that. Rob Lipsight and exactly Dave Zirin and real authors. Yeah. So it's it, I, I see it getting bigger. The at the core of it, um, Jonathan Hahn is a is um, my executive editor. He's uh, he's I was an MFA student at Riverside, but um, ran a, um, a, a kind of published public relations firm for nonprofits. Um, and continues to run that. Um, um, Matthew Spector is our fiction editor. Um, he and I knew each other from Janet Fitch's book group. Um, and uh, he's uh, a, a novelist himself and a screenwriter. Um, and uh, Evan Kindley, who, who was finishing a PhD, uh, who I just mentioned, uh, finishing a PhD at, at Princeton, has been kind of at the center of it longer than almost anybody. Julie Klein, who is our nonfiction editor, she was uh, um, in the... Um, Evan, Julie, uh, and I were the... And, and Matthew were the first the first four people that were working on it fairly steadily. One of the things I love about the website is that you can see photos of all the contributors. They're mm -hmm. listed alphabetically. Uh, it's really fun to scroll down them, as I did uh, recently, um, today actually, and 
think about the people you know, the people you don't know, the people you know of, what the photos seem to say. I found it really engaging, quite an unusual feature, I think. I have a, I have a real encyclopedic um, bent. That is, I, I'm, an, I'm an encyclopedist. I, I grew up reading um, the Columbia Viking Desk Encyclopedia, you know, this one volume big monster. Uh, I, that's, that was my bathroom reading through my entire childhood. I would just wander through it. And it gave me this relation to knowledge. Uh, and then, of course, I didn't go to college. Um, I, I, I didn't really go to high school. I mean, I was so stoned in high school that it was as, as, as if I didn't go. So I just, I just kind of was, I, I, I had, my, my relation to knowledge was very random. And, uh, and 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 very uh, kind of uh, an odd kind of collector relation to it, um, and so my books, in fact, are often just over chock a block with information um, to a fault. Uh, many reviewers have pointed out <laughs> over the time. So I, I I really love the the parts of the of the of the review that are. Uh, encyclopedic in nature, like those the, those lists, the author yeah, pages. The, that's interesting. Yeah. Could we jump into your background a bit now, since you've you've raised it? Sure. So, high school, you're not the most scholastic of person. You're basically yeah. in the bathtub, reading the Columbia Viking <laughs> Dictionary and getting high. Yes. Does the dictionary, sorry, encyclopedia ever fall into the water? No, no. No. What about the joint? It doesn't. Yeah, no. You know, they your priorities. They will dry out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this is how you got interested in knowledge in a way that is both scattered mm-hmm. and magpie-like and also profoundly organized. Yeah, right, exactly, right? exactly, right. exactly. So what happens to you when you get out of a tub at 18 or 17? Or I wander around the country, um, you know, uh, odd-jobbing um, and, uh, you know, carpentry, playing in bands a little bit. Um, a terrible, terrible musician at that point. Um did um, worked in restaurants, of course. The, mm-hmm. the, the the various things that one does when one has no resume and right. no particular skills. You know, a lot of on the job training, and um, uh, ended up doing a kind of back to the land hippie stint for a while. Uh-huh. Where and was that? Part of it was in Western Massachusetts, and part of it was in Iowa, in the in the Mississippi River Valley, south of Dubuque, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Did Just, you grow up in the Midwest? No, I grew up in. Yeah, I was born in Jersey City and uh, ah. grew up in Jersey and Connecticut, and then wandered wa- wandering around, ended up in Iowa. So you've been fighting off the Patty Smith accent all your life. The the, the Patty Smith. Yeah. Should accent. we should we let the phone keep ringing yeah, through this? Just a kind of naturalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's been. You were talking about some of you as saying that you've got facts in search of a narrative. Well, mm-hmm. This has been described to me as handmade media. Okay, right. And I really yes. like the term, and I'm happy. Yeah, it's to nice. Use yeah. As a descriptor. Uh, so, so, so you're not trying to lose your Patty Smith accent. You're just happy. Uh, no, I well, I moved. I moved from uh, from Jersey to Connecticut from kind of um, uh, you know uh, post-war Levittownish um, yep. housing development, New Jersey to hoity-toity Greenwich, Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm when I'm in sixth grade. Uh, so I'm ten years old, and uh, and and so I I lost my accent as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, my kids still make fun of me a little bit. They, they, they say, can pick it up. Yeah, they say I say bottle <laughs> instead of bottle, and that yeah. uh, apparently I don't aspirate my H's, which um, I cannot hear the difference. But uh, I guess that's the way accents work. Um, but so you, yeah, I, I think I, I think I was I was very anxious to get rid of it in those years. You make your way north, and then you make your way west and south. 
Yeah. Um, as part of this hippie commune world. Um, yeah, I, well, it was it was a combination of it, the hippie commune would go for a while, and then I'd get a, a restaurant or job or a or a construction job, and then I would, um, and sometimes those would take me elsewhere. Um, uh, hippie hippie uh, encampments um, tended to happen where there were no jobs. And are you reading <laughs> was literature at this point? Yeah, all the time. I was I was the best read person in my circle of drug addicts through that entire decade yeah uh, always and uh and and um and and proud of it um and i had a i had a, a you know some blocks and boards for shelves and i would i would collect my books i would keep my books and um i was very very impressed by it and again it was just kind of random reading in that it was used bookstore reading mm-hmm. um but when i ended up in, uh, in iowa through a series of accidents. Um, my, my used bookstore was in Iowa City, which is one of the literary capitals of the world, of course, because of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And um, and so the used bookstores there were, were fantastic, and they were of a certain kind. That is, there were a certain kind of high literary, um, and at that point, a, a fair amount of experimental, you know, a lot of fiction collective stuff. And, um, and so I, I, I was reading I, all sorts of things that I, I don't know where I would have bumped into them mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. um uh and uh, and I, I picked up a kid hitchhiking once who was working on a phd in contemporary literature and uh, he looked at my shelf and he said oh my god my, my entire dissertation's on your bookshelf he was uh. like he couldn't figure out what how this had happened um, but it was a, a, a again an accident of my used bookstore so i was reading randomly almost nothing um before a lot of beats of course a lot of the hippie curriculum um, you know everything from Carlos Castaneda and, and Alan Watts and Tibetan Book of the Dead and all of the stuff that you right um, but then also getting guided to a certain extent by the whole Earth Catalog and sure. Coevolution like Quarterly and there's the kinds of um, you know the, the stuff the stuff that was in that it was was current in that subculture and that took me in, in a series of different directions but it was not uh, it was not uh, disciplinary in the in the in, in the in the sense that a, that a college education would have um, would have been so when I went when I started going to college which I did accidentally again I was a, I was cooking at, a, at a, the University of Dubuque which is not a university um, but it is in Dubuque it's a, <laughs> a small uh, small college that was at that time it turned out um, kind of it was one of the times when those small colleges were dying and their financial aid guy came to me and said would you you know what he watched me reading Nietzsche and Freud um, while I was on my breaks um, it was it was you know ten of us working the kitchen, all of us in hairnets. Uh, I was the only one that you know, the only male. Um, but uh, you know it was it was me and the women who who were, had been cooking there for years, and uh, and they would talk they would complain about their husbands to each other it was was the prime part of their the conversation. And then and I would be reading um, uh, on the side, and, he, and and this guy just came up to me one day and said, "What what is your story? What?" It's not computing to him, and um, and he said if you if I wanted to go to college there that I could go for free. Wow. That he would just he, there are Pell grants he said and we'll just stick one on you and 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 they were I think just they they were ready to take any live body they could find to stick a Pell grant on and and keep their coffers flowing. So it, I started going to school and and once I got there I realized among other things that there were people who read books for a living. I thought, holy mackerel. <laughs> so how old are you at this stage? Uh, 28. 28, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So the fact that 
there is a thing called literary criticism for which you can get paid and all you have to do is teach people about literary criticism to do it. Yes. It's rather appealing. Yeah, and I didn't even know that there was a thing called literary criticism, frankly. I knew that there were that there were books and that there were books that um, that people talked to students about and made students read. That's what I that's what I learned first. Uh, a little bit later, I learned about literary criticism, or I, I, I kind of didn't make a distinction between literary criticism and and, and other forms of literature, because mm-hmm. um, I think I had read uh, Sincerity and Authenticity, for instance. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was literary literary criticism. I just thought it was an interesting book. Um, right, right, right. So you're entering a small college, you're small college, years older than everybody else. Yes, with a lot of life experience and not a lot of recent experience of any kind of structured education. Zero. So what's it like being a student in those circumstances? Well, I was still cooking. Um, uh-huh. So I would, I would, you know, jump out of class and, <laughs> <laughs> and run back to the kitchen or did all, you know, I couldn't take any, um, I, was t- I was cooking breakfast and lunch, so I couldn't take any classes before noon. Um, that was okay, and it was a, it was a three college system: the Clark College and Loras College, two the other small liberal arts colleges, and um, you know there were, there were some great faculty people there that really you know they of course love to have a, a slightly different student in the room to liven things up and make things a little different. Um, so that was that was fun. Uh, I did that for a year, and I realized that I really could use a, a slightly larger academic environment. I went, moved back to Massachusetts, where I had been, um, and where I had a place I could live, and um, started going to UMass, and did that for the next couple of years. And which it, UMass campus was uh, Amherst University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is part of a big system, but is a huge university. I mean, it's a yeah, it's a big school. You know, it's big tens of thousands of students. Yeah, fifteen thousand something yeah. like that. Um, and uh, and 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 was great for me. They had a uh, I was I was basically an extension student um, there. Mm-hmm. I was a you know I didn't I didn't matriculate in a in a normal I was an adult returning adult education student, um, and uh, so I could I I could take pretty much whatever I wanted and I could and I could test out of things with a college level exam program mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and and uh, one one of the things I tried to test out of was a um, or I just get credit for it. it wasn't it wasn't a test it was a, it was I could go in I could write up my life learning get a professor to sign off on it as the equivalent of a course and right so I went into an English professor and I said I would like to get a, a credit for an American literature survey um, and here's the list of books I read, which I thought was very impressive because it was, you know, a few hundred books. He's your encyclopedic. Yeah, soul exactly. And I said, here, here, look at that. Doesn't that look like an American <laughs> literature survey? And he said, well, no, it, it really doesn't. It looks like a lot of books published between 1950 and 1975, <laughs> which is which is what it was. Uh, it, and it, that was the first moment that, it, that I understood that that there was such a thing as periodization. Um, and that that's one of the ways you thought about literature was uh, historically. I mean, it just did not occur to me um, before that. I mean, I obviously knew things were published at different dates, but I didn't realize that was an important criteria for understanding the way you uh, understood books. Well, it's interesting. In those days, of course, period was one way in which literature departments in the United States were divided. Of course. Now it's dirty words, coverage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, you somehow or other stagger through UMass Amherst mm-hmm. and then have you got the taste for this stuff oh, in love with it in love with right. it and uh, and and again I was I had three uh, three children 
at this point. So um, I was working um, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and um, going to school on Tuesday and Thursday. And so I could, I would, and I was, and I was, and I was kind of anxious to get to get keep moving. Um, the, in my last year, I did a, a, a thesis, an undergraduate thesis on uh, Jacques Lacan. Mm-hmm. Which, um, who was uh, fairly new on, on, the, on the American scene at that point, um, and uh, just happened to have a uh, psychoanalytic critic um, who actually didn't like Lacan, um, you know, didn't understand what it was, but he'd had somebody come in and give a talk about about Lacan, um, and um, and so I did a, I did a theory of fiction based on Lacanian. Psychoanalysis. As an undergrad thesis. As an undergrad thesis, and you know, I'm, it, it was. Uh, I did it. I did it. I opened it with a survey of all schools of um, critical inquiry, um, again encyclopedic, <laughs> uh, discussing why each of them was inadequate. Um, to understand the petty objet are, yeah. where only you <laughs> exactly were capable in a modest, mild manner, fundamentally, thoroughly Olympian mode. <laughs> True yeah. understanding. Hilarious. Yes, exactly. Hilarious. So they are. You, you emerge early thirties with three children and a Jack the Lack screed under your right. arm. Mm-hmm. What happens to you then? I I apply to graduate school. I'm I'm thinking probably I'm a novelist. I was going to ask about yeah. what you wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought I I had been thinking for the you know for those last ten years that I was probably a novelist, um, and I would sometimes when I was like hitchhiking around the country or riding trains around the country, I would I would take a notebook, mm-hmm. and I would and I would scrawl down some Kerouacian mm-hmm. um, prose in my in my notebook. It I was not clear about how one became a novelist. It seems very obvious now that you sit down and you write novels, but I, for some reason that was that, that part of it was eluding me, uh, because I was really I was caught up in a kind of uh, experiential notion of the, of of, uh, of the kind of beat notion of of, of the literary, which is a, some kind of transcription of um, your everyday activity, um, and I thought that my everyday activity was kind of interesting, and so I, I, obviously I was gonna it was all gonna come together somehow someday. <laughs> Um, so I, and then I thought, well, um, getting a job teaching literature would be a way to support my habit as a novelist, and um, so I applied to graduate programs. And where did you go? I went to I went to Stanford, mm-hmm. um, which is so uh, having started undergrad in the Midwest and then mm-hmm. gone back to the Northeast, you move over to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I, I applied. I, I, I knew that the only way I could go to graduate school is if I got a, a, a really good deal, right. a good, good, good funding, because I've got the, all these children. And uh, and um, and I still, you know, every summer I would go do a major remodel for somebody or do build a house or, mm-hmm. you know, and did some work in the carpentry work in the, on, the, on the side during grad school. And it was, you know, it was really dumb in all sorts of ways to try to get a PhD at a time when no PhDs were getting hired and you know people warned me against it but I, I was I really wanted to do this so I, um, I and I, I applied to dozens of programs basically every program that gave first year money in the country and got rejected by all but three of them um, and those were Stanford Brown and Irvine so very prestigious places. Very prestigious places in Irvine, of course, was the theory school at that point, and I had done the Lacan thing, so it made made sense. Um, and I went then and and visited each of them, 
and uh, Irvine um, just, I, I, it was hard to imagine living there um, after my back to the land years. I think the only way people live there is by imagining. <laughs> Maybe I hadn't put that together yet. <laughs> um, yes, this is yeah. this is not quite you know boxcar Tom. Yeah, no, it really is. It was looking, not looking congenial place. America yeah, real self. exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was the. Uh, I was so not. I was so unprepared for that. I was unprepared for any of the three of them, really, as it turns out. But, but uh, I'm definitely unprepared for that one. But both both Brown and Irvine, I, I, the the professors that I talked to were, were seemed very harried and very busy and very um, um, kind of you know waiting for the director of graduate studies at Brown. There was a line at her office, uh, and um, and. Uh, and and I that was part of it. And then I uh, and I also had uh, I, I got to the Stanford campus, and um, thought, it's beautiful. This is this is not too bad. And they had this married student housing that was very nice, all kind of kind of wooded wooded groves uh, off the side of the campus, and and they were offering a very good deal. And it was a program called Modern Thought and Literature, a very famous program, um, which uh, was a, was basically a hippie program, right? It was a do your own thing PhD. Um, that was, it was founded by Albert Gerard, uh, as a, as a place for novelists to get a PhD. You could write a novel as your, as your thesis and, um, and, you know, changed over the years in various ways, but it was very, uh, it was perfect for me, uh, you know, still full of Oedipal rage and, um, and, uh, and it was, it was a place where I could do it at whatever I wanted and, and nobody was really, you know, if, 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 uh, you know, we 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 in modern thought, the students in modern thought, really thought we were smarter than everybody, um, and uh, our professors didn't seem to mind that us thinking that, which so it was, it was a place with with no no resistance, um, and therefore kind of uh, you know, the, the, the freedom to wander through that campus was just awesome. Now, we've got about ten minutes, quarter of an hour left. That's okay. Okay. Sure. I'm wondering if we could scoot ahead to. What you wrote your PhD on, and then your books which okay. you've written. Is that okay? Sure. I, I, the PhD, the, the, the thesis was on the year 1903. I'd been I'd been studying with Renato Rosaldo, uh, the um, anthropologist and now poet, um, who uh, was uh, the, doing his kind of narrative ethnography, the begin, beginnings of his narrative ethnography work at that point, um, and uh, and Mary Pratt, um, and uh, and. In a, in a seminar with uh, Renato, um, he he was he was running through all of the kind of arguments about narrative as an alternative to structural functionalism, and uh, and of course it was the era of thinking through post post structuralism. Uh, this is in the eighties, and, and gigantic debates within Stanford within oh, yeah. anthropology. Horrendous splits. Horrendous splits, and um, and Renato very very clearly on one side of those. Um, so that was exciting. And, uh, but I, but I thought, um, in literary studies, as far as I could see, um, moving into a kind of non-narrative post-structural or a non-structuralist narrative world, post-structuralist narrative world, um, didn't have the same kind of valence that it did in, in, in science like uh, anthropology, social science like anthropology. That is, we had always been narrative. You know, Van Wyck Brooks was telling stories about American literature, right? 
F.O. Matheson was telling stories about American literature. And I thought, well, it's very interesting what, you know, um, to, to kind of decide now that we're anti-structuralist um, in that kind of um, ethnographic sense. Right. This is the way this, this, the society is put together, um, when in fact nobody had actually ever done that with American literature. Um, and so, what would it look like if we did? And so, when, in Renato's class, we talked about diachrony and synchrony, um, about about structure versus process, uh, about the fact that everything is always fluid and moving, and therefore you can't actually do that. So, what, what would it look like if we ever tried to do a structure structural analysis of American literature? So I think we're still back in that bath. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and exactly, you know, it, it definitely appealed to that encyclopedic uh, image. I, I, I'm going to do a, a dissertation on the year 1903. And this became a book. Yes. Uh, a very renowned book. And am I right in thinking it's your only book that's with a conventional academic press? Uh, no. It's, there... But no, yeah. I, uh, Cosmopolitan Vistas... Uh, which is a book about American regionalism, is also with Cornell University Press. But you've also done trade books. Yes, right. And so you've you've sought to provide get a greater audience for your work than is yes. the case if you just do X university press, Y right. university press, whatever. Right. So 1903, what happens in that book? Uh, I thought that that book was actually for a general audience too. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Cornell University Press actually thought it was for a, a general audience. And I, on the back cover, they had these kind of bullet points of like, what happened in 1903? <laughs> Invention of the teddy bear and the, you know, the, the first baseball World Series. And, the, you know, they just went down this kind of bullet list of um, like it was a trade book. And, uh, and it was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review. Very, very slow book week. Uh, the guy that read it just loved it. Um, and... Uh, and so they, so it, it it got this. They immediately put out a second printing of it at Cornell, uh, in in hardcover, which was great because it stayed in print forever, because people read that review, went to bookstores, looked at the book, and said, "I I can't read this. <laughs> this is not, this is ridiculous." And it, it, I was so professionally deformed already, you know, that by by my graduate education that I could not write for a general audience you were just to save my life. In terms of yeah, it was just it was it was yeah. you know still a lot of theory speak, a lot of uh, a lot of academic talk. Right. Um, and and then I, I wrote uh, my book on crying, uh, the cultural history, the of cultural crying. history of tears. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, which was a um, which was a, a, a kind of second attempt to 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 kind of become a writer for a general audience, um, and uh, that was published by Norton, and. Uh, it was, um, there, were, there were a couple of versions of that book. The, the first version was very much a kind of modern thought version. It was just this mishmash of uh, every discipline, every thematically based. So it had a chapter on engagement and escape, you know, tears as this kind of form of a- pure, authentic um, uh, intimacy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing. Thomas Jefferson, you know, there's no more great, there's no greater pleasure than to mingle tears with the one with whom the hand of heaven has smitten, or so, something like that, right? There's a kind of 18th century mingling of tears as, as foreplay um, thing and as and as, as as intimacy, versus Alice, you know, kind of getting washed away in a river of her own tears, the way uh, the Sartrean notion of the the emotion as the thing which takes you out of whatever your stressful reality is and mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, uh, re refocuses your your uh, consciousness on your own body right? um, and away from the world. Um, so it was this engagement and escape and through 
you know, 14th century BC to the present, movies, films, you know, sociology, all over the place. And my editor said, no, "This is this is we can't do this. You have to you have to give us the sociology of tears, the psychology of tears, the physiology of tears, the neurophysiology of tears, the history of tears, tears in art, tears in literature. You know, just tears in film. Now, just go through, get a get subject back by in subject, the bath. right? Get out of Stanford. Yes, get back, get in, back the in the encyclopedia. Yeah, so I, I I wrote that. It's it's uh, I, I I still like that book, and that book had real legs I still every time a famous politician cries I get a call um, from, a, from a news organization somewhere <laughs> you know, the prime minister of New Zealand weeps I get a call so I am um, you know it's a, it's just a you know it's a that's been a that's been a really fun book and con continues to be fun to kind of talk about now and then John Boehner's tears for instance because mm -hmm. um, the conclusion of that book is that tears are always a form of deceit John Boehner's tan is one well, I even more deceitful. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there that moment when Obama said, "John, like me, is a person of color"? Yes. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know, when I when I when I started writing the 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 crying book, I really thought, ah, you know, I'm free of all of this kind of academic, you know, having to kind of couch your argument and you know make sure you've covered every book that's ever been written on the subject and this was just i could i could go do anything i wanted again i could just like flip through the encyclopedia at random um and uh and and so i i, I thought it was and then of course when my editor got to it and i had to rip it to shreds from what i thought was a really kind of great book and turn it to another kind of book which is not terrible but i don't think it's as good as my, as the book i was i was trying to write um, I, I, I felt that commercial pressure and I, and, uh, and when I, when I finished it, I started writing an academic book and thought, Oh my God, I'm so glad to be free of that, that silly commercial, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, conditions. I'm just, this is, this is, this is, this is true freedom. And then I wrote that and I sent, sent that off and it plunked into the ocean of academic books without making much of a ripple which one and was this one this, uh, that one well actually I did a, I did another academic book in there it was about the uh, Harlem Renaissance essays um, but this one was uh, the, the one I was just thinking of is Cosmopolitan Vistas so this is back with Cornell this is back with Cornell and um, it's a it's a kind of my it was my kind of the function of criticism at the present time book mm -hmm. um, and a kind of bit of a a bit of a critique of prevailing winds in the in the uh, academic study of literature um i think it's a really I, I like that book but but it's uh but but um it's but it's academic and then after that i did the slacker book the doing doing nothing the slacker book which uh has got a lot of attention i think it's fair to say it's a crossover kind of book it's a crossover book yeah, yeah, yeah. it was with far strauss Giroux, um kind yeah. of st standard yeah. new york yeah. publisher and you were a professor for much of this time, or all of this time. All, all of that time, yeah. So after the PhD, where were you scooped up? Uh, after the PhD, I was. Or um, you throw I was. At? I was very, very pleased to get a job at the University of Iowa, oh. and um, I. Um, so you know, first time tragedy, second time farce. <laughs> <laughs> after my tragic hippie years in Iowa, I ended up back there, completely unrelated, and ended up in Iowa City. Um, that used bookstore was gone uh, in the intervening years, but um, but, but, the, but writers I, the writers program was still there. Famous. Yeah, and I was in the English department, and I taught some courses at, when I first got there that had been developed by other people um, before I got there. 
uh, Ed Folsom started a course called uh, In Print in Person, and he would just use the visiting people that the writer's workshop had um, as faculty each year, and also the work workshop faculty, and also people that were just kind of coming in to give a talk at Prairie Lights, the local bookstore. Um, they always had a very robust reading series, and we would just grab one of those people, and, and we would do the Woody Allen, Marshall McLuhan thing. We would have read the book on Monday with the kids, and then read it on Wednesday, and then on Friday we would bring well, it up. Bring, with the author and the, the author crowd class. and the yeah. This man has absolutely no understanding of my work whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's an imposter. Yeah. So that was good. That was, that was fun. And I, I, I taught there for 18 years. And then you came out west. Then I came out west. I, would, um, I met uh, Laurie Weiner, uh, who was, was at that time a theater critic in New York. Um, and I thought, well, that's only a thousand miles away. So um, we got married, and uh, and she immediately took a job at the L.A. Times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now two thousand miles away, and I I was and, and it was when 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 that happened is exactly when I started really trying consciously to write a book that uh, a commercial publisher would want. So um, she moved out here. I started writing Crying. Um, and, um, you know, got an agent, sold it, and then and thought of myself as having a commercial fellowship. Uh, took a, was teaching one semester a year at uh, Iowa and, and living in Los Angeles the rest of the time. Um, and, uh, and writing my, my trade books. And, right. You know, writing some magazine pieces, some newspaper pieces, and trying to cobble together a living. My salary at Iowa was so pitiful that to replace half of it with writing income was not impossible. Um, so it, 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 it worked out. Um, that did, went on for almost uh, almost a decade, eight, eight or nine years anyway. Um, and uh, and then uh, Steve Levine at uh, Carroll Arts asked me to come in and run his uh, MFA program because uh, they because um, our friend Dick Hebdige had left that job and um, and uh, they needed somebody to kind of step in at the, at the last minute to take that over so I, I did that for a year and um, because that was a, a an administrative job it it opened me up to other job possibilities out here including one running a program for Riverside um, so that the very next year I got hired at Riverside to run the MFA writing. program out yeah. in the out in the oh, desert. desert. Yeah. But now you're back at the main campus. Yes. And yeah. in the creative writing department. Right. I wondered if we could finish up with just two or three minutes, if you could, Tom, mm -hmm. on a question that's been running through my thinking in the last few minutes while you've been chatting, while we've been chatting. Namely, this interesting oscillation you've got going between the scholarly and the trade. Mm -hmm which seems to be partly an intellectual journey, partly a political-economic journey, partly a journey of taste, partly a journey of freedom. And here you are with, you know, the Los Angeles Review of Books, again, straddling those fences. Most of the Very people much. I know either go all one way or all the other. You know, they no. do... Once they've gone into the trade world, they don't want to go back and write academic books. That's right. Because this is real, and you get proper editing... And people actually read you, and you get reviewed, and it has an impact. Right? As yes. opposed to people who say, you can't say what you really want to say, you can't say it the way you want to say it, it's pointless, it's pap. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I, 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 I am, and, and the Los Angeles Review of Books is a, a completely a reflection of this. That is, I, I love being at a university, in part because I love talking to people with these incredibly bizarre, special 
for bits of knowledge. It's that it's that section on the aardvark <laughs> in the encyclopedia. But, you know, these kind of nematode specialists, you know, you know, we have 37 people uh, studying nematodes at, at Riverside. I mean, it's just astounding. Um, and, uh, and, and to kind of get to, to kind of be, uh, in, in relation to those forms of knowledge, uh, at their, at the edges of those forms of knowledge, I find incredibly exciting and incredibly valuable. And I love, I love, um, the, the, the kind of most obscure, over-specialized, um, from certain perspectives, forms of academic labor. I just think, and I think that we, I thrive on them. I write, my, my trade books are, are made possible by actual scholars doing real works. I did not figure out how to read the Rashamra tablets, the very earliest, you know, over the 14th century BC tablets that have the first representation of tears uh, in, um, in the world. Um, right, that was some wacky guy out in the desert digging stuff up for years and years and years and figuring out how to, uh, and then a bunch of other people trying to figure out how to uh, decode it. Uh, so I, 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 and I, I'm very interested in figuring out ways to bridge what, a very, what I think is a very unfortunate divide between academic knowledge and uh, and and the, and the greater reading public, um, the disdain people have for academics is uh, is a, is a travesty, and it's a tra and it's and it's got incredibly horrible effects in the in for instance in the destruction of um, state-run university systems all across the country. So I'm, I'm uh, I, I do f see myself as working to bridge that particular gap. I think you do it magnificently, both in your own writing and now in your editing so tom lutz thank you so much uh i hope you'll come back to the pod when the next book comes out when los angeles review books go through another transformation whatever the alibi or excuse could be will you return and speak to us again please anytime toby and of course the next time that you're in the country <laughs> <laughs> happy days thanks very thanks. much thanks